Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Nudie Brains Podcast. My name is Emily, and I'm the host. I'm really excited to be interviewing Charles Nye today, who is a research scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, just down the road from where I go to school, and he studies environmental DNA there, which is what I study for my thesis. It's basically all of those particles of DNA that are floating around in the water, and you can use it to identify species that are in the area, and whereas I use it, you know, just looking at one at a time, he looks at every single animal that lives in the area, so I think that that's really cool. Um, he also, as kind of like a side project, does a lot of illustration, especially of dinosaurs, um, so don't forget to check him out on Instagram. He'll give you his handle and things like that because he's an amazing person and somebody that I would definitely want to hang out with again. Um, so don't forget to leave a review of the podcast and subscribe if you aren't already. And if you have any questions for me or want to continue any conversations, you can follow me at Emily, the Marine Biologist. And I hope that you enjoyed the nice vocals that Charles has at the beginning of this podcast. He said to leave it in, so I did. <laughs> Keep that in the edit. <laughs> start. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Charles. Oh, nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. So let's start off with what is your favorite invertebrate? My favorite invertebrate is the study species I had as an undergraduate, Tegula funebralis, cool. the black turban snail. Yeah. Totally inconspicuous, totally covers the intertidal rocks. No one cares about it at all. But I'm super excited whenever I see it because it's my baby. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, when you start researching something, it becomes one of your own so absolutely yeah. is there anything like really cool about them that draws you to them or what did you research about so them? i researched their phylogeography so it was my first ever foray into genetics ever cool. right until that point i was uh training in undergrad to be a pure marine ecologist and then uh through dr eric crandall at ccmb i got an opportunity to study their population structure and so uh beyond that uh tegula as a genus there's another species of tegula that carry a parasite that most sea otters are inoculated with. I forget what it's called or what kind of parasite it is. Is it the toxoplasma that comes from cats? No, no, it's an different? entirely different huh. kind, but they'll, they'll find both yeah. in sea otter necropsies. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, So tegula are a hidden kind of, they're, they're waging a war against yes, the otters. <laughs> absolutely. Shoot. So why did you start studying science in the first place? So this goes back a long way. Um, my last name has probably condemned me to a life of science. <laughs> For those of you listening and didn't read the description, my last name is Nye, N-Y-E, as in Bill. Um, unfortunately, I do not know of any relation oh, shoot. to the science guy. I do call him Uncle Bill in yeah. jest when I'm talking about him. People are like, really? And I go, no. No, not really. Yeah. Uh, so this goes back a long way. Uh, science has been a big part of my life ever since I was a kid. First, it was dinosaurs, then it was elephants, then it became whales, and it became dinosaurs again, then it became whales again, and then I started college. <laughs> and I had no idea what to, what to make of it, because when I started college, um, I don't think anyone really knows what a marine biologist actually does, because... When you look on job sites, there's never really a marine biologist position. Yeah. So it the Pandora's box opened, and the, it was just so overwhelming that I didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. So that that's where I kind of started off undergrad, and then 
whatever I got myself into, I got myself into. And now we're doing DNA, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's kind of like those memes that you see where it's like, what my parents think I do, what my friends think I do, what I actually do. And it's like, you know, your parents think you're a really cool dolphin trainer. Yeah. Your friends think you're like diving in coral reefs and you're actually there like suctioning snail poop. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I get it. Cool. Um, and I know that you're really interested in dinosaurs because you have your art Instagram page, yes. um, which is really cool. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So I run a uh, paleo art Instagram called The Paint Paddock. Um, all one word, all lowercase. That's my plug. Um, <laughs> you can plug yourself as much oh, as you want. It's fine. Awesome. Well, here's my SoundCloud. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I started paleo art as a kid, but it never really seriously took off until undergraduate. Um, at that point, in one of my many forays into seeing what the heck I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to do scientific illustration as in, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And, but then I realized it wasn't for me, and I really only wanted to draw extinct megafauna, which is cool. pretty, it's pretty niche, awesome. but it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's very nice. <laughs> um, so yeah, I uh, do that in my spare time because it kind of unlocks a separate uh, part of my brain that I don't use on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And in my... Uh, unprofessional opinion the life back then was kind of cooler <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah that's great I really I really enjoy your art on there um, Thank you. so what do you currently research I know you're doing environmental DNA yes. and, and the listeners range from everyone to my mom to you know scientists so you want to explain like what is environmental DNA and, and get kind of down into the nitty-gritty of it? sure sure so environmental DNA the idea behind it is that in any given environmental sample, be it a water sample, soil sample, mud, even air, there are fragments of uh, organic material that you can hypothetically sequence out DNA from. Mm-hmm. So uh, if, as you walk around in your daily life, you are shedding uh, evaporated sweat, you are shedding skin cells, you are uh, you know, if you leave the bathroom, there's fecal matter following you in your wake, right? Um, that sounds so awful. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. But apply that to um, every living thing on this planet. They leave traces of themselves even after they're long gone. Well, relative, depending on the environment. But yeah. uh, they leave a, a pretty much a footprint or a, a thumbprint of their presence. And if you suss out the organic material there, you could see who's been there within a reasonable time period. So what I research with uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in Bari is uh, kind of the analytical prowess of eDNA in the Monterey Bay. So you take a water sample and within reason, you should be able to see uh, approximate species compositions. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool because sometimes you do get a pretty accurate representation based on what you would assume yeah. Right. And other times you get something that's way off. You get like right? a mango, and you're like, mm, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> One big thing in our data sets uh, are insects that right? get into the mm-hmm. just parts of bug that are probably on the surface. I'll be honest. Yeah, it's they might early. be. But uh, uh, the thing, the thing about eDNA and other uh, applications of this is that uh, you take your extracted material and you quantify it and you do all that fun stuff with it, and then you categorize it. And that part is crucial because um, your data set can change based on how sensitive you set those parameters to and uh, and the specificity of the data, database can really tell you, can, can change what you get out of it. So uh, there are kind of two major clusterings of how you categorize the data, but uh, they're called ASVs and OTUs. And I don't need to go like super in depth with this, but there's, 
you have a category and then you have a reference database. Uh -huh. And then that reference database will say, oh, in this category of DNA, these are fish. And then you dig deeper. Oh, these are all cartilaginous fish. You dig deeper. Oh, these are all sharks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it stops right there. Sometimes it stops at just fish because the DNA are in different states of decay or yeah. what have you. So, uh, and sometimes you don't have any reference information at all. And so the biggest category in our data sets for eDNA is called unknown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we don't, like, to get those sequences, you have to take that animal and sequence its genome. And so for all these things we've never sequenced before, we don't even know what they are, we can't identify them at of course. all. So yeah, that's really interesting. And do you do that like out in the open ocean or closer to shore? Where do those samples get taken? Sure, so we have, uh, at Ambari we have kind of the opposite problem from a lot of other research institutes <laughs> where we have a huge backlog of samples from all over the world, mm -hmm. but uh, in terms of the Monterey Bay, in terms of what I'm currently in right now, they are anywhere from within maybe a mile offshore to a couple miles offshore. Okay. So that's where we're at right now. And the, the vertical gradient is one of the things we're interested in. Uh, for the listeners who don't know, the Monterey Bay is home to the Monterey Bay Submarine Canyon, which goes, I don't have exact numbers, hecka deep. Really deep, yeah. <laughs> So that's where we collect samples from, anywhere from the surface down to 700 meters, 1,000 meters, and you see what you get out of that. That's so cool. I, I study eDNA for my thesis, too, so I just find it really fascinating. That's awesome. Um, and when you're out on sea, do you ever see any effects of climate change or pollution out there, even when you're several miles off the coast? Sure. Climate change is harder to suss out in particular, yeah. uh, just because I haven't lived here that long. You know, you have people here from... 30 years ago who go, I remember when it used to be colder. Somebody told me it used to snow like once or twice a year in Santa Cruz. Yeah. One of my like older friends. And I was like, what? How does that happen? Anyway, sorry. Didn't mean to. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that's what exactly <laughs> what I mean, right? I don't have that kind of uh, tenure here. Yeah. But um, pollution all the time. Every time, and I'm not, you know, Ill, uh, I'm not over-exaggerating. I'm not trying to, you know, flare up any uh, agenda here. But every time I've been on the ocean in a boat we have seen plastic pollution or a balloon or some uh, remnant of human civilization that shouldn't be there that's harmful, mm -hmm. right? So every single time, without fail, and I've been on the open water maybe 10-ish times or more. So yes, we do see signs of anthropogenic stressors on the ocean all the time. Yeah, that's tough for sure. Um, what do you think is the most important thing that everyone needs to know about our planet or climate? Just like one thing. One thing. Oh, dear. okay. Uh, <laughs> stay in school. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the one thing is, um, ah, here's the thing I like a lot, is uh, recently there have been a lot of climate uh, defeatists on my feet. You know, people who are my age going, oh, there's nothing we can do that matters because the only thing, the only uh, forces that could affect climate and affect the current state of the world are these huge mega corporations or mega governments, right? But we have 16-year-old girls riling up, <laughs> incentivizing massive, massive, yeah. uh, you know, debate, massive, massive uh, crowds going out there and protesting. So to heck with that. It, every individual matters. It's just that... Um, maybe the kind of effort we need to do is different than what people imagine. Uh, 
I'm sorry, your plastic straw might not be the one to break the camel's back or not. But you telling other people why you don't use a plastic straw, that causes a ripple. Right? Yeah. And that makes them think about other things in their life that might not be as good for the environment. My little brother uh, started a recycling club oh, at his high school because so cool. of the things I do. And, you know, little siblings, I empathize with you. You don't want to live, not in the shadow, but you don't want to be like your older sibling. But that kind of thing just causes ripples because mm -hmm. people realize, oh, I could do more than what I'm currently doing. Yeah. Right. So that that's probably the most important thing from a non is that a non scientific perspective or is that a I think yeah, I think uh, it's fine. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's funny how you say that. It does cause a ripple effect in like you know, one action doesn't doesn't we won't stop climate change tomorrow, but that you know, by starting to do one thing and, and communicating about that to other people, it can really pass on. I remember my dad sent me a picture the other day from work and he was like, look, Em, I brought my own fork to work. Like I brought a metal <laughs> fork so I didn't have to use a plastic one. And he sent me a picture. He was so proud. And in the background, there was a plastic water bottle. And I was like, dad, come on. But it's a step, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a step in the right direction. So that's, that's very awesome. cute. That's very cute. I know. He tries so hard. <laughs> um, so... I don't know too much about your background, but how did you get your position at Ambari? Did you get a bachelor's degree? Did you get a master's, PhD? How, how does one get into the field of scientific research being like a big kid researcher? So I walked in one day. No. <laughs> <laughs> I put on a wig. No, yeah. no, no. So, I just walked in, put on a name badge, pretended like I belonged there. Yeah, no. I think I, I got, okay. So of course I'm going to say I got lucky. Right, because not everybody could work at a research institution right out of undergraduate. So yes, I only have an undergraduate degree from. I shouldn't say only. It's a that's an achievement. Yeah, no, that's still everybody, an achievement. You know, absolutely. I, you know, people getting their bachelor's degree that's an achievement. Don't worry about that. Don't don't let the haters tell you. Oh, it's just a bachelor's <laughs> degree. Okay, makes it worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to go through that. Oh, so lucky! <laughs> well, lucky, lucky dogs. <laughs> but um, yeah. So here's my educational background. So I. Uh, after high school, I went straight to CCMB, California State University, Monterey Bay, in lovely Seaside, California. Um, there, I was a marine science major. And for the first two and a half years, that was all I was. And then I took my first stats class, and I realized I like this kind of math. Gross. <laughs> people no, say stats that. Are good. Stats people, are good. No, but people like honestly have an aversion to stats. You know, after my first stats class, some people were like, "Oh, I don't think I want to do research if this is what's what it's like, right?" And that's an honest call you have yeah. to make, yeah. and that's perfectly okay. But for me, I was enthralled by the prospect of quantifying the world in that way, mm -hmm. and so I took on a stats minor. Yeah, and that was really cool and really rewarding because I was able to. You know, kind of interpret science in a, in a new light, right? It, in hindsight, I wish I could, could have taken like a stats major, doubled it, but that wasn't available yet at CSUMB. There is now a stats major at CSUMB <laughs> the semester after I left. But anyway, oh, no. anyway. Um, uh, and getting a research position is a lot easier in undergraduate than people think. When you're an undergrad, um, you have a lot of tools at your disposal yeah. that kind of go away after you graduate. Yeah. People need to take advantage of their time there. And uh, it's frustrating because some are like, um, some people argue that they don't have uh, guidelines when you're an undergrad. You know, the, the advisors aren't telling me what I should do, but forging your own path is crucial. Mm -hmm. And seeking out those opportunities is crucial because if you seek those out, 
you're going to find something. Chances are, especially if um, especially if your skill set matches the current climate of the industry you want to go into. Yeah. Yeah. So when people come into marine bio, marine science, um, they have a different idea of what the career pathways and availability of jobs is actually like. And for those listening who want to become a marine biologist, the, the best skills I can tell you are analytical, mathematical, computer, that kind of thing. And that might sound scary, but this really opens up the world for you. Not just marine science, but in many other biological disciplines. Because now we're kind of, I don't want to sound too, uh, you know, down with the old, in with the new. <laughs> Now we're kind of away from the time of doing strictly boat surveys for orcas or whatever. Now you can use a drone. Yeah. Now I know some labs at CCMB use drones to, uh, they get the light refraction off different intertidal species. And then they can assign species diversity based on the kind of light that's reflecting back at them. Yeah. It's super, it's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. But that that's kind of how you get a job in this kind of, is it an industry? Yeah. yeah sure, it's an industry. Yeah, That's so. how you get a job in this. And so how I got my job at Mbari was um, I studied uh, kind of applications of genetics. Mm -hmm. And that landed me a job at Mbari because, you know, if you network well enough, you'll find people whose interests align with yours best. And no matter how daunting it might seem, applying, applying, applying is... I think the most crucial thing you can do. Yeah. You know, people are, especially in, yeah, my age range, maybe a little bit younger, maybe a little bit older. There's a five, ten, five to 10 year standard error. Um, <laughs> imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Big problem, big yeah. problem. So um, even if you don't feel like you're qualified, even if you don't feel like you have what it takes, somebody starts from somewhere. Yeah. And so that's really how you need to, how I would suggest approaching trying to find a job in marine science and so on and so forth. Getting analytical skills, applying yourself, and uh, talking to as many people as you can. Yeah, that's absolutely. Huge. The worst they can say is no, right? Yeah, yeah, that, and that, that's it. all scientists, like, it might seem really scary to email a senior scientist or something like that, but we're all just really weird. Like, Oh, wait, 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 oh, oh my God, yes. <laughs> and everyone's friendly, even if it's deep down. Like, everyone's just really weird. So just find the people that you have the same weird things in common with and try to connect with them, right? I heard your podcast with Amanda Khan oh, earlier. Yeah. And oh my gosh, she's such a radiating bubble of energy. Oh my gosh, I love her so and much. She's probably yeah. here. We can walk down the hall and, and I'm like, hey, come here. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about weird people. Yeah. I love you, but come here. <laughs> <laughs> Not that you're one of them, but you kind of are. We, we all like are. You. We all are. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's okay. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> so maybe you kind of already went into this, but do you have any tips for people who want, especially for like young people? Who want to help the planet? So as we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, it's these like sixteen-year-old girls that are mm -hmm. trying to like whip us into shape. What can young people do to make even more of an impact in your eyes? What can young people do? It's frustrating when you're young. I remember not being old enough to vote. I remember uh, not being old enough to drive or do anything like that. The ripple effect does mm -hmm. wonders, especially these days with social media. It's Okay, okay. People who are like half my age have like 6,000 followers, 10,000 followers and more. Yeah. It, it's bizarre, but people have influence, you know, from their home, from their couch, basically, right? Yeah. You have Twitch streamers. You have all these people who are young and have a following and can do something with mm -hmm. that. Not saying that every teenager is doing that, but understanding the tools you can have from the 
from the comfort of your own home or where you live, you can make a big ripple by broadcasting what you're doing to make steps to become to living a more sustainable lifestyle, to combat extinction, to, to share your poster on an endangered rhino species or something, right? Yeah. That kind of reach it was impossible just a couple of decades ago. Now anybody can get to the first front page of YouTube or Reddit or Instagram, right? So uh, using that far reach of modern technology is pretty crucial. And uh, participating in local events, also very crucial too. Um, you'd be surprised how many support groups there are, how many clubs there are for, again, for like recycling and for planting a tree or whatever. And you can start that. My little brother started that. You can take the initiative and launch forward. And for some people, that's daunting. I, yeah. I understand that. But uh, for people who are feeling frustrated when they're young, you can convert that frustration into initiative, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. They have more power than they know, for sure. Um, how do you feel about uh, climate change deniers? What oh, would my you... God. <laughs> that's typically everyone's response. Like <laughs> or like a sigh. What, um, what do you have to... What would you say if you were to come face to face sure. with a climate change denier? So I actually volunteer at the Monterey Bay Aquarium proper on my free Saturdays. So I oh. do occasionally come into the, the person who's not quite buying it. And... This is kind of a different opinion, I think. It's okay to an extent to be skeptical of certain things because that's how science works. Yes, right? absolutely. Every scientist, every scientist vies to prove the other wrong. Yeah. <laughs> in a weird way, not, not in a weird competitive way, but like we want our ideas to stand scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And I welcome that challenge. However, there, there comes a point where uh, climate denial is more damaging than helpful for refining ideas, right? It's not like in ancient Greece where people were huddled around Socrates talking and debating, right? Yeah. And people are just, uh, people either don't understand these data flat, and that's okay, educate yourself, or they just refuse to understand it. Or they understand it and they have an ulterior motive behind, you know, not... not oh, oil not, companies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so on and so forth, right? But if I were to come in contact with a climate change denier for some people they have their mindset mm -hmm. and it's important to not let that deter you from trying to make the world a better place there's a comic that circulates every day on my social media it's like um someone gave me a presentation about like free healthcare and you know clean air and you know uh, saving endangered species and some guy stands up and goes yeah but what if this is a hoax and we're making the planet a better place for no reason <laughs> so that that's my position as well developed as i can make it without being too emotional about it yeah. i know i'm clear-headed i'm sure if, i'm sure if i like got into a you know a bar fight <laughs> you know i'm sure things will be different but um right now with the level head and knowing you know kind of understanding why one would be in that kind of position that's important understanding how someone can come to that conclusion when the evidence is overwhelming you know there, there's indoctrination there is radicalism when in a political ties and there's ulterior monetary motives Understanding that is the first step to combating future instances of climate denial. And I feel like that's going to become fewer and fewer as time goes on. And, you know, people 
either wake up or they're displaced by <laughs> climate change and have to yeah. deal with the repercussions of such. Yeah, absolutely. And I liked what you said too about like, you know, it's not Socrates' time anymore. We're not all sitting in a room debating these things because that kind of seems like how some of this misinformation gets spread about is social media. Like we were just talking about, you know, anybody can have a platform, but we're not all on the, in the same mm, space mm, to discuss it. Mm. Um, and people on the internet can be really vicious. Oh my God. And like, they oh don't have God. to be responsible for their actions. So maybe we should just get the whole world in one room <laughs> and just talk out our problems. What was this, the stat? Like everybody, if they lived in the same density as Manhattan would fit in Texas. Oh, perfect. Let's do that. Have a giant megaphone in the center and just take turns. Yes. All seven billion of us. It'll take a all, long all time. All eight but... billion of us. Yeah. We're, but... almost, we're almost there. It'll be 12 billion by the time we're done. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to plug about your scientific communication project, your art project, anything like that? Um, About those in particular? Uh, or anything. Let's plug. Uh, hmm, that's a that's a question I didn't anticipate today. Sorry. No, it's okay. No, that's fine. <laughs> I like to keep people on their feet. Oh yeah, I know. That's how you know it's real. I know right? it's great. Um, I guess the biggest plug for for the art that I could say is that it's it's my hobby as a scientist to do more kind of science things, uh, but it's important to have that medium. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important to me to keep that on me. People ask me all the time, um, "How come you're not a paleontologist?" Every time, yeah, every time it's it, it, and it's an honest question, you know, because if you were to step in my room, you'd see all my Jurassic World figures and like cool. and like you know memorabilia, and you know if you go back through my childhood pictures, there's always a picture of me with a dinosaur shirt or something. Yeah, right now I'm wearing a plain gray T-shirt, so that that time has passed. But uh, professional, professional, <laughs> semi-professional now. Yeah, this is lab attire, people. Well, scientists don't wear lab coats all the time. No. But um, it's important to have that that extra medium to keep you uh, keep yourself happy. Because uh, let me tell you, working in conservation sciences can be kind of depressing. Mm -hmm. it, it can get to you. As, as we mentioned earlier, I've seen plastic pollution everywhere. I've gone in the ocean. I, you know. I do come to contact with evolutionary deniers, evolution deniers. Yeah. I come in contact with the occasional climate change denier. And it's disheartening knowing that there is a, a wealth of information that backs up these very important concepts that kind of govern the world, mm -hmm. you know, over everything else. And it's important to keep yourself happy or else yeah. <laughs> bad things can happen yeah. or else you get stuck in a rut. And uh, that's why I do my art. Yeah. Uh, for scientific communication, my main outlet is the aquarium. Mm -hmm. that, that's why I, I stay there and uh, do that every other Saturday because I enjoy uh, coming into contact with the general public. Because when you work with experts all day long, you know you're uh, you forget that people don't know certain things, and yeah. that that kind of ties back to uh, what you can do to. Uh, oh, that's perfect. What you, what can you do to influence uh, uh, or to help out? in conservation and against climate change as a kid the aquarium has the aquarium has a teen program yes they do we do awesome. the tcl is a teenage conservation leadership something so, like yeah. that yeah and these are awesome kids it's a summer program and if you live kind of far-ish away from monterey california which i assume many people do but 
if you're within a reasonable distance, it's like a summer program and you come in when you can, I think. You'll have to read up on the details, but those kind of programs exist and your impact ripples from in-person contact more than social media. If you could do things directly, mm-hmm. that that's so much better than social media. But if that's all you can do, that's all you can do. But um, yeah, so that's why I do the aquarium still is to engage with the public and to talk to people about why the decorator crab is super cute yeah. even though people are like that is terrifying and it looks like a spider <laughs> <laughs> and why why uh the sheep head changing sex is the coolest thing on the face of the earth right and if you get people riled up about these stories they're more inclined to protect it because people protect what they love mm-hmm. and if you can make if, if you can convince somebody to love a sheep head or a sheep crab or this weird wolf eel You've kind of won that day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a little bit. Plus, it kind of reminds you, like, you know, ignorance is bliss. Like, when people see something for the first time and they get so excited about it, it really reminds you how cool what you're doing is and how important what you're doing is. Like, I work with kids sometimes, and when I see the joy on a kid's face, when they see a plankton species (laughs) for the first time, I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah, this is kind of cool. Even though I have to go home and, like, trudge through my horrible abalone data, it's still, like... You know, I made a difference in somebody's life today, and their joy just kind of radiates. You know, what kind of program do you do with kids? Um, I lead field trips with. kids. Oh, wonderful! So, yeah, that it's pretty fun. so cool. Yeah, it's really fun. And this um, is like a local kind of kids and around the area. Yeah, like, yeah, wonderful, local. Wonderful. So, yeah, it's That's pretty really cool. cool. <laughs> yeah. So, the, is there anything else you want to share, or are you ready to move on to an obscure fact or pun? Oh, let me think of an obscure fact or pun real quick. This has to pertain to my research, or can it be any marine science obscure fact any or pun? Marine science. I mean, if you have one that pertains to your research, that's great, but... I'll give you two. One okay. pertains to my research and one that doesn't. Okay. So, um, oh, I told you about the other category, didn't I? <laughs> that, that's, that was my one for my research. Let me think of another one for eDNA. That's really, really cool. I'm trying to think of... I mean, it's all cool to me. I know. It's all cool to me. Oh, I can. I think the coolest thing right now is uh, from a from our data sets. You know, we detect species that haven't been confirmed in Monterey Bay. Whoa, that's yeah. cool. Like that, what? Um, I, I, there's a paper I read today. I forgot exactly what. It's some kind of fish, but like you get certain groups of fish and other assemblages that aren't present as of the last big census. Mm-hmm. The last big census though was in 2013, so okay. it's been six years. A lot has happened since yeah. then. Yeah, and. This isn't a fact, but more what I'm interested to see going forward is uh, there are southern species moving in to Monterey Bay. Yeah. I'm interested to see moving forward if we'll detect those. And I have a strong feeling that we will. And it'd be a really cool thing to see that kind of pattern. But the cool fact is that we find things that shouldn't be here. Yeah. Kind of on the regular. And sometimes you don't know if that's because of false positives or mm-hmm. because if maybe they are here. Yeah. yeah. And species do move. I mean, as, as water gets warmer down south, they are going to move up potentially up north so that they can kind of stay in a temperature that's comfortable for them. So that's really interesting. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. And um, you have two Instagrams. Will you share both of those handles so people can follow you? Um, I'll share the one. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, actually here, here's a kind of dichotomy on Twitter. You can find me at at CNI science guy on Instagram. You could find me at the paint paddock. And those are my two kind of public-facing social media right now. I've considered making my other Instagram public, but it's like, mm, 
I want something from me. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much again, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. Thank you very much. Thank you.